Well, good morning, church family. Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab those. Today we'll read together John chapter 4. So today we will read John chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And this story is very familiar to many of us. But, but what I want you to do is I want you to see the story through a fresh perspective. What I want you to do is I want you to understand, really answer the question, what is the meaning of the passage in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 10? And I'm going to read it here this morning. I'm using the New American Standard Version. It says, Therefore, when the Lord, notice that when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, Jesus then left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Notice that. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And then there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman puzzled and said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Amen. Uh, question, where were, where were you uh, January 24th, 1995? Uh, some of you probably say it didn't exist. Um, but something started on January 24th, 1995 that captivated the nation. It was just as famous as COVID, more divisive than COVID, and had more opinions than COVID. January 24, 1995, was the first day of the O.J. Simpson trial. And in that trial, don't worry, I'm not going to give my two cents on it, okay. Uh, but in that trial, you had evidence. The evidence was witnesses and items that were then weighed to arrive at a verdict. And if you remember, that verdict had widespread effect. Here this morning, we have a trial. We must weigh the evidence to arrive at a verdict, and then we will see how this verdict shapes our lives in the 21st century. Today, we put on trial the story of the Samaritan woman. We will examine the evidence to determine its verdict or true meaning, and then we will capture this, and then we will see how it applies to our lives today. But there is a problem. There's a problem that every juror faces. The problem is bias. They look at the evidence through a skewed view of the world. They look at the evidence through the lens of their own experience or knowledge or desires. We here today are faced with the same difficulty, the same obstacle. We here today are faced with the same issue of our own bias. Many of us have heard the story of John chapter 4. Many of us have heard the story of the Samaritan woman at the well so much that we really fail to see the evidence. We really fail to see the story. 
and the actual details of a story, and we fail to really observe it and then arrive at its true meaning. So this is our goal today. Today we are trying to answer the question, what is the true meaning of the story of the Samaritan woman of the well, specifically verses 1 through 10? And if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn in those to John chapter 4. And if you notice in your text, from just a bird's eye perspective, that the entire story of the Samaritan woman at the well goes from verse 1 of chapter 4 to verse 42. Now, if you know my style then uh, 42 verses is entirely too long to talk about this story. So today is just episode 1, is verses 1 through 10. Next week will be episode 2 of this story, which will go from verse 11 to verse 26. And then we'll have episode 3, which will go from verse 27 through 42. But our answer, our goal today is to answer the question, what is the verdict or the true meaning of verses 1 through 10? And in order to arrive at this verdict, in order to really understand what this passage is really saying, not only to the audience in the first century, but also to us today, we must examine evidence. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 2. And I want you to notice the most important word in this entire verse. And we often overlook it. Notice verse 1, it says this. Therefore... When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. What is the most important word in all of chapter 4? It's the most important word, but it's also one that we just commonly you know, overlook. We just kind of pass by. But in order to really understand what John chapter 4 is really talking about, in order to understand his meaning, we have to point this word out. Evidence number one is the word therefore. It's the most important word in all of chapter 4. Why? What is the, the therefore is what I say, therefore a reason, right? What is it doing? What is it therefore doing? It's linking. It's, it's telling me this, that there's some kind of relationship between chapter 3 and chapter 4. Therefore, because what is it contained in chapter, th- chapter 3, therefore, now, we are going to unpack it. So then the question is, what is in chapter 3? What is the link between the two? What does chapter 3 contain? If you were here for weeks 10 through 15 or whatever we were when we were talking through John chapter 3, then you know John chapter 3 contains two things. It contains the story of Nicodemus, how this Pharisee, this member of the Sanhedrin, one of the most important men of all of Israel, comes to Jesus by night and he asks him how to be essentially born again. And then at the end of chapter 3, verses 22 through 36, what does that contain? It's outlined in verse 30, but in a sense, the end of chapter 3 is a tapestry of Christology. What do I mean by that? That it is a beautiful picture of who Christ is. The end of chapter 3 really talks about his identity and the prestige of Jesus. The end of chapter 3 in John, what does it really talk about? It really talks about the deity and the divine nature of Jesus Christ. If you could put the end of chapter 3 in a nutshell, it would be this phrase, that Jesus is the Son of God, but that Jesus is above all. Since he is from above, therefore he is above all. 
Now, I want you to take that phrase, and I want you to capture it, I want you to take, and I want you to put it in your brain, and then I want you to walk into chapter 4 with me, and I want you to see why that phrase is important. Evidence number one is the therefore. It's linking chapter 3 with chapter 4. And then my first point today is that Jesus is above all. Take that, and then watch verse 3. Jesus left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. What do these four verses reveal? It reveals evidence number two of Jesus' travel arrangements. That's what Jesus' travel arrangements. Notice, where did he leave? He, he left, what does it say? He says he left Judea. Why did he leave Judea? It's because of opposition. What does it say in verse 4? It says this. Verse two, verse three says, he left Judea and went away, oh, excuse me, verse one. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea. Why did he leave? It's because of opposition. So Jesus leaves Judea. Now, where is that? Judea is in the southern part of the nation of Israel, and he's heading to the northern part of the nation of Israel, which is Galilee. Then notice the second travel arrangement. If you have your notes, these are all in there. Verse 4, and says he had to pass through Samaria. says he had to pass through Samaria. Now the question is, is, what does that mean? That he had to pass through Samaria. Now on the surface, we would say that in order to go from the southern part of a country to the northern part of the country, that you would have to pass through the middle part of the country, which is the land of Samaria. But this is actually not true. Many of you probably are familiar with this, but the Israelites, the Jews, were so disgusted, so repulsed, so reviled by the Samaritans that what would they do? They would then walk around. If they had to go from Judea to Galilee, they would walk around the land of Samaria. I have a map to actually show you itself. This is a map of the land of Israel. See if I can pull it up. So that is it. If you notice, the orange part is Judea. That's the southern part where Jesus is in chapter 3. You have the northern part, which is the yellow, which is Galilee. And on the surface, we'd say, okay, in order to go from the orange to the yellow, we would need to pass through the blue, which is the land of Samaria. But that's not true. What Israelites, what Jews would do, because they reviled the Samaritans so much, is that they would cross over the Jordan River, go up the side, and into the land of Judea. So then... We have to ask the question, why did Jesus, if he didn't have to pass physically through the land of Samaria, then why does it say he had to pass? Based on the original language, the actual word here, had to pass, reveals Jesus' submission to the Father. Jesus knew that he could walk around the land of Samaria, but the reason he walked through Samaria is because the Father in instructed him to do so. But then notice travel arrangement number three in verse six. It says this, and Jacob's well was there and Jesus being wearied from his journey was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. I 
What does that verse reveal? I mean, obviously, on the surface, it reveals his humanity, that he is a human being, he is in full human form, and he is wearied from his journey. But, but catch the implication of this. Just, just think about the Gospel of John from a bird's-eye perspective. Just look down on it. Notice what he's doing. The author, John, in the end of chapter 3, what does he talk about? He talks about the deity and divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is fully God, never created. And then in chapter 4, he talks about how Jesus is wearied from his journey. So here you have both of his natures colliding. You see here a collision of two opposite worlds. The infinite with the finite. His Jesus in limitless form at the end of chapter 3. And then him being limited in form of human beings. Don't miss that. You know, in the original language, they didn't have chapter divisions. So if you're a reader of this manuscript... You would just read it almost as one story. That here you have, at the end of chapter 3, you have Jesus' full deity. And then here in chapter 4, it displays his, hu- his full humanity. But then notice travel arrangement number 4. What does it say in verse 6? It says that it was the sixth hour. Now, he's clearly talking about what time of day, but what time of day is that? We don't really know for sure what time of day it is. It depends on if this is Roman time or if this is Jewish time. But to me, it seems most fitting that the story of the Samaritan woman occurs at noon, which would be Roman time. Why? Why does the story of the Samaritan woman happen at high noon? Well, for one, if you notice that Jesus' disciples are not with him, but they are in town, right, gathering food. Now, why would somebody be gathering food for the day at 6 p.m.? Okay, some of us probably do that. But in this culture, lunch has already been served, dinner's probably already been served, so why are they going to the town at 6 p.m.? So it makes the most sense that this is happening at noon. But then notice also, it makes sense that it's noon because noon is the hottest part of the day. So probably Jesus is walking from Judea with southern part. He's walking through Samaria. He's probably walking all morning long, and he is weary from his journey. He's trying to rest during the hottest part of the day. But then the best part of the passage, in my opinion, is still to come. What is travel arrangement number five? Notice what it says. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting down thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now you ask me, what is, why is that important? The, the key to good Bible study, we would say exegesis, is asking good questions. The question I had this week when I was sitting there preparing, I was preparing at the beach, which is always a good place to prepare a sermon. Um, the question is, Why? You know, why would John, the author, include this detail? Because it's obviously significant that Jesus is sitting at Jacob's well, otherwise it would not be mentioned. If the well's location and heritage wasn't important, then it would just have said, so Jesus came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, and a well was there. The question is why? Why is it significant that Jesus is sitting at Jacob's well. What is the heritage of that well? It says that it was lying near the parcel of land that Jacob gave to Joseph. So it is Jacob's well. Who is Jacob? Let's just answer that. 
Yeah. Jacob is the father of Israel. He is the father of the twelve sons of the tribes of Israel. And also, the nation of Israel is named after Jacob. You remember that story. So here is Jacob's well. Perhaps this well is the most Jewish place on earth. In a sense, it is a shrine to Jewish culture. Right? Here is this very... Think about it, the, Jacob's well's importance for just a second. The fact that they remember where that well was 1,500 years later tells you how important that well is to the nation of Israel. So Jesus, the Son of God, who is a Jewish man, is sitting at a shrine, in a sense, to Judaism. And then who does he talk to? He talks to a Samaritan. Somebody that the Jews hated. Somebody that the Jews considered half-breeds and reviled them. That Jesus, <laughs> that Jesus would have the audacity to sit there at a Jewish well and talk to a Samaritan. If you're a Jewish person sitting there seeing the scene, you're just repulsed, you're shocked at Jesus' audacity. But the question I have is, let's just answer this. If you're a, a, a person in the first century and you're a Jewish person, and you read verse 6, somebody would have to peel you off of the floor. And some of you might be asking, let's just go TMI. I do that at least once in my sermons. Some of you are probably asking, why do the Jews and Samaritans hate each other? Why is it such a big deal that Jesus, being a Jew, sitting at a shrine to Judaism, is talking to a Samaritan? As I've already mentioned, the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They reviled each other. As I already mentioned, if a Jew was going from the southern part of the nation of Israel, he would go around the land of Samaria just to avoid talking and conversing with Samaritans. But in order to really understand their hatred, we must understand two different things. We must understand the origin of the Samaritan people, and then we must understand the source of their conflict. So what is the origin of the Samaritan people? Now this is where I'm going to get TMI. I'll pick you back up later if I lose you. If I could give you the Old Testament in a chronological timeline, it would be this. That Abraham's at 2000 BC, Moses 1500, David's at 1000, 500 BC is the return of deportation, and then 0 BC is obviously Christ. So you have Abraham's 2,000, Moses' 1,500. Moses leads the people out of Egypt. He then leads them into the Promised Land. Then you have Joshua, and then you have the period of Judges, and then you have Saul, and then David in 1,000 B.C., and then you have Solomon, right? And then you have, if you know your Old Testament history, then you, the kingdom then splits after Solomon into the northern ten tribes of Israel under Jeroboam and the southern two tribes under Rehoboam. You, you tracking with me? I know it's a little bit TMI. Okay, so that splits in 931 B.C. So then what happens? Well, fast forward 200 years. The nation of Assyria comes and conquers the northern ten tribes of Israel and deports them. They, they deport basically Israel's best and brightest back to modern-day Iraq. And then they leave the leftovers, the Jews in the land... And then what do the Assyrians do? They then take people from all these different nations, all these different and then they put them into the land of Samaria. So then what happens over the next 200 years, these Jews that were left behind then intermarry with foreigners, 
And then you have their descendants are the Samaritans. So that's why the Jews felt like they were half-priests. They weren't full-blooded Jews because they intermarried during the time of deportation. So that's the origin of the Samaritan. But what's the, really the source of their conflict? The conflict began before what I'm about to read to you. But the real, the gasoline on the conflict, when it really blew up between the Samaritans and the Jews, came in Ezra chapter 4. If you want to go there, you can. So where are we in Ezra? The northern ten tribes were deported in 722 B.C. The southern two tribes were deported in 591 B.C. And then the southern two tribes, the Jews, began to return to the promised land first under a guy named Zerubbabel. And this is where we pick up in Ezra chapter 4. Some of the Jews that were exiled have begun to return, and they want to build a temple to God. This is Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, so let's talk about, let's talk about the actual ancestors to the Samaritans there. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, because he's the leader of the nation of Israel at this time. He led the return. And they also approached the heads of the fathers father's households and said to them, Can we join you? Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God, and we have been sacrificing him since the days of the king of Assyria who brought us here. Right? We just talked about that, verse three. But Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers of the households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus and King of Persia has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors amongst them to frustrate their counsel all the days of the King of Persia and even till the reign of Darius. Now if you notice here, this is the ghastly, this is what I would say is the straw that broke the camel's back. What really happened here? The Samaritans, the ancestors of the Samaritans, came to the Jews and said, we want to participate in building a temple to our God. And what does Zerubbabel say? He says, we have nothing to do with you. You go worship your God, and we will go worship our God. And then what, out of spite and out of revenge, what do the Samaritans then do? The ancestors, what do they do? They then cause more problems. They hire counselors against them to frustrate their counsel. They cause problems. So herein lies the, the gasoline or the event that really started the major conflict between the two uh, races, so to speak. You have the Samaritans who have breeds who hate the Jews, and the Jews hate the Samaritans because of this event. But, 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 but pull this event then into the land of John chapter 4. I want you to then see the butterfly effect of this event in Ezra chapter 4. Not only do they hate each other, not only do they revile one another, but what else? The fact that Zerubbabel did not allow the, the Samaritans to build the temple with him forced the Samaritans to then build a, another temple on a mountain in Samaria and if you notice in John chapter 4, verse 20, what does the woman say? She mentions the temple in the land of Samaria. So let me just put it all together for you. The reason the Samaritans and Jews hate each other 
It is because of this conflict. And the reason that there are two places to worship in the nation of Israel is because of Ezra chapter 4. So think about that. Something that happened 500 years earlier pays consequences when we come to John chapter 4. Now, do this. Imagine you are a first century Jewish person. And you know this history. Your ancestors, your great-grandmothers, great-great-grandmothers have all hated the people of Samaria. They have stricken them to a particular plot of land just to kind of avoid them. And they avoid them by walking around their nation. They, they revile them. And then here is Jesus, who is professed to be the Son of God, who is the Lamb of God, perfect and spotless, who has come to save the people from their sins. And you're a first century Jewish person, and you see this Jesus, and, and you, you think that everything's pointing the right way, that Jesus has talked to this guy named Nicodemus, who is a ruler of Jews. So you might be thinking that, that the gospel, that Jesus Christ, that he came and he died for me, might just be for Jews, and just for, for good Jews like Nicodemus in their eyes. But then you come to John chapter 4, and here is a Jewish man in a shrine to Judaism talking to a Samaritan. Somebody that you have hated for 500 years. You would have to be picked up off the floor. What is the meaning of John chapter 4 verses 1 through 7? Point number 2 is this. Since, since Jesus is above all, then he is Savior to all. Can I say that again? Since Jesus is Lord of all, then he is Savior to all. He's not just Savior to the Jews. He's not just Savior to good people. He's not just Savior to the people that have gone to church all their life or were raised in a Christian home. But the blood of Christ is sufficient to pay for the sins of the world. At Jesus Christ, the gospel extends to every person that has ever lived. That is the point that I see by Jesus sitting at a shrine of Judaism and he talks to somebody. But if you're, a, if you're a first century Jew, it gets even weirder. It gets even more shocking. Because Jesus does not just talk to a Samaritan. Who does he talk to? Notice verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said, or give me a drink. And for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it? Notice her shock in her voice. I, could, I would love to be a fly on the well, okay, sitting there, not on the wall. But I would love to be a fly on the well, seeing her reaction to this request. Because I can just imagine her shock. How is it that you, who hates me, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10. Jesus answers it. If you knew the gift of God, it extends to even you. Who it is who says you give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Evidence number one is that therefore it's bringing in this idea that Jesus is above all. And then the well, in my opinion, is bringing in that Jesus is Savior to all. But then evidence number three is this Samaritan woman. Not only is Jesus in the most Jewish place on earth... And not only is he talking to a Samaritan, but he's talking to a Samaritan woman. But not let's just let's just let's just go this let's just go further in this. 
This is cultural, okay? This is a, today's sermon is going to be a bunch of culture, just to understand what we are even reading right now. But this Samaritan woman, she's not just a woman, but she's an outcast from the outcast. She's an outcast from her own society. That she is shamed that people have pushed her out because of her choices in her life. They kick her out. Now, where in the world did I get that? Do you notice what time of day she's drawing water? She's drawing water at the sixth hour, which is high noon. The fact that she's drawing water at high noon tells me something very profound. This scholar puts it in better words. Just hang on and listen to what he has to say. As Jesus sat beside the well that afternoon, tired and thirsty from his journey, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. The cool of the evening was the time when women customarily performed that chore. But this woman came at high noon, perhaps because of her desire to avoid public shame. What was also unusual was that this woman came such a long distance to this well when there were other sources of water closer to her village. But she, the Samaritan woman, for reasons that will soon become evident, was an outcast. That she would rather walk the extra distance in the hottest time of the day than face the hostility and scorn of other women at a closer well. The fact that this Samaritan woman draws water at noon at a distant well, tells me that she would rather walk the extra time, face the heat of the day, than face the ridicule and shame of the people that she lives with. Think about Jesus. He is a Jewish man sitting at that well, and here is this Samaritan, but this woman, who is an outcast of outcasts, and even his grace extends to her. Even his gospel, even his love extends to her. Her, somebody that the world has rejected as unimportant. That Jesus' gospel saves even her soul. I think that's one of the reasons why, there's a lot of reasons why I love the scripture and I love Jesus. But that's one of the things when I read the gospels is one of the reasons why I love Jesus. Because Jesus does not go after the righteous but sinners. Jesus takes the gospel and he goes to the tax collectors. He goes to the fishermen. He goes to the Samaritan woman at the well. He goes to the outcasts of society to present to them eternal life when they probably think in the back of their mind that there is no way that God loves them. There's no way that the gospel, that Jesus, that God even cares. And here is Jesus. He doesn't care what his society says. He doesn't care what his culture is is noticing in John chapter 4. But he sits there at that well and he proclaims to somebody that is forgotten of society that they are loved, that they are redeemable. There's no one in this world that is unredeemable. There's no one unsavable. That God's grace, what I see here in John chapter 4, it extends to all. Everyone that lives on earth today can be reached. Everyone in America can be reached. Everyone in Alabama can be reached. Everyone in Huntsville can be reached. If the gospel reaches to the outcasts of outcasts, then the gospel reaches to all. That is the message that I see here in John chapter 4. If I could put it together in a point, 
point, my last point, point number three, is to says including outcasts. I'll just put it all together. My point today is this, says, since Jesus is Lord of all, John chapter 3, therefore, it's telling me there's a relationship there. Be, therefore, since Jesus is up from above and is Lord of all, He is then Savior to all, including the outcasts, including what society has thrown away. If I can say it this way, no outcast can be outcast outside of Jesus' reach. No outcast can be cast outside of Jesus' reach. Say that one more time. No outcast can be cast outside of Jesus' reach. There is no stain that cannot be cleansed. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven. There is no soul that cannot be saved. There is no person that cannot be reached. All Sinners and souls can be saved by the Savior. Jesus does not just save good people. Why is that true? (laughs) Because there are no good people, right? That's what the Bible says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The gospel does not just extend to the people that grew up in church, the people that are good and try to earn their way to heaven. No, the gospel extends to all because all are sinners. Let's just be, okay, let's, friends, let's avoid the trap of gospel exclusivity. That Jesus just died for some, that Jesus did not just redeem Americans or people who grew up in church, but he redeems all because he is Savior to all. Now, I know my audience, right? I, 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 I know that we know that. I know that we know that the truth that Jesus is above, therefore he is Savior to all. I know that we know that here. But do we know it here? We know the truth that Jesus is Savior to all, that he paid for the sins of the world, but do we know that with our lives? Are we willing to share it with people that we see every day? I want you to picture somebody in your life that you have hesitated to share the gospel with. I think of one right now. Jesus died for even them. Will you then go and communicate the gospel to them and to the ends of the earth? The question I have as we head towards closing is, so what? How do we take this passage and apply it to our lives? My application is, Quite simple, since Jesus is Lord of all and is Savior to all, including the outcast, then therefore what should we do? We should then share it with all. That's the application that I have, that we should share the gospel with all. But, okay, we, I've already said this, but we know that here. We know that here, but, let, but we, we struggle to know it here because why? We're probably a little bit fearful of communicating the gospel to somebody that we love because we're afraid that it might change our relationship with them. Yes? Am I the only one in the room that struggles with that one? We're fearful. It's just human beings. That's just part of life. And, and, a, and a thought came into my brain this week, and I'm a flawed human being, and my family would be glad to remind each and every one of you of that because I am definitely flawed. But I find it more frightening that if I get to heaven and I see that person that I did not share and, and they don't enter the heaven's gates but they enter hell, I find that far more frightful and far more fearful that if I was afraid to communicate the gospel to this person and if they didn't hear and didn't believe because I wasn't willing to share, that thought 
terrifies me. But then, how do we share the gospel? Right? If, since Jesus is above all, and since he is Savior to all, including outcasts of society, then our job is to then take his gospel to all. So then the question we have to answer is, how do we actually present the gospel? How do we actually share Jesus with people? Three ways. Number one, through our love. What does it say in John chapter 13, verses 35? It says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By all this, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I'm just going to repeat this. In a, in a time of COVID where everybody in the world has seemingly lost their mind, okay? Listen to this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Why should our love stand out? What is the world full of? It's full of darkness and hate and revenge. That if we love one another in this body, in this church, in this church building, if we truly put we above me and him above me, if we love, we're going to look different. I mean, the world is looking at us. How can sinners and fools and Samaritans and tax collectors and religious and Muslims and atheists tell our faith it is by our love? The world should look at our love and how we treat one another in private, behind closed doors, and in public. And they should look at how we love one another and say, I want what they have because I don't find it anywhere else. We communicate the gospel through our love and then, number two, through our deed. This is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. It says this, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I, in a sense, I hope the world thinks we're a bit weird. Um, I hope the world would look at our love and say they're strange. <laughs> I hope the world would look at our deeds, how we treat people in the grocery store, how we serve the community, how we love our children and our wives and husbands, how we show deeds outside of his walls, and that they would look at that and say, they have something that I want. Friends, let us be weird. <laughs> let us be strangers in this land because we are. We are not of the, we are not of this world, but we are in the world. Let us be kind to the barista at Starbucks, forcing us to wear a mask. The world should look at our deeds and should it should point to Christ. Let us share the gospel with our love, with our deeds, and with our words. What does it say in Romans chapter 10? How would they believe in him and whom they have not heard? How would they hear without a preacher? How would they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. There comes a point in time where that your love and your deeds will point people to Christ. But there comes a point in time where you must actually share the gospel. What is the gospel? What do I mean by that? John 3.16. If 
that God loved the world, that he saw our sin, he saw our darkness, he saw that we were far from him, and he loved the world so much that he sent his son to die on the cross as a payment for my sin, that if I believe in him, that I shall be saved and have eternal aliveness. That is the gospel in a nutshell, that God loved and God sent, therefore believe. Friends, let us, let us be weird. Let us be strange to this world. Let us not behind, hide behind our comfortable walls in our house and in our church. But let us love people. Let us serve people. And let us communicate the gospel to people. Really quick, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I share this every week, which is my conviction. If you do not know Jesus Christ, if you do not know him personally, if you do not have a relationship with him, if your life has never been changed, if you've never been born again, if you've never been renewed, then Jesus Christ offers you the gift of salvation by faith, that if you believe in him as your Lord and Savior, that you will have eternal life. But let's just say it this way, that that salvation, that the gospel has more implications than being in heaven and floating around the rings of Saturn for eternity. What a boring picture of heaven. But rather, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you can then follow a Savior that loves you, that grants you, because of salvation, adoption as his child, who grants you eternal, endless love who allows you to be used as his ambassador who allows you to serve him and to make disciples and to leave a legacy not for your sake but for the kingdom of God what manner of love is this since Jesus is above all he then is savior to all including those that society is outcasts so then let us take the gospel to every outcast of society. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Um, Lord, I, I know that um, some of this information may have seemed just information. Um, but Lord, I, I hope it gives us the ability a smaller ability to begin to understand what is really going on here in John chapter 4, that you, being a Jewish man, a savior of the world, would approach a Samaritan outcast. Lord, what a profound measure of love that that displays to each and every one of us, because we are all sinners and we are all outcasts. And if we know that if Jesus would approach a Samaritan woman, then Jesus approaches me and grants me also eternal life. Lord, I pray this. I pray for the Christians here. I know that none of this is is really uh, revolutionary. I I know that we know this. But Lord, I don't want us to just know it. I want us to live it. I want us to take the gospel and, and be grateful for what you have done for us. That you've given us eternal life and a changed earthly life. Lord, I just pray that the message of Jesus would never grow old. Because it's not. Lord, what a magnificent Savior that we serve. Lord, thank you for Calvary. I thank you for those that are tuning in online. We miss them. I pray for protection and encouragement for them, that they would feel where they are encouraged and strengthened. Be with today uh, as we communicate what is going on here at Calvary. Let's pray for a sense of unity and love and clarity. 
And I pray all these things in your son's precious and holy name.